The Cuban Missile Crisis turned out to be a disaster for Kennedy. His approval ratings plummeted in 1963. The American press was widely and loudly against him. His military chiefs shouted in his face that he had been weak. Internationally, the crisis damaged America's reputation and alliances. American influence around the world palpably began to wane. And yet, Kennedy is now widely regarded as America's most popular president and the Cuban Missile Crisis his greatest triumph. But that's because the Kennedy myth machine swung into action from the moment the crisis ended. Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Cafe, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. The Kennedy myth machine cranked into gear as soon as the Cuban Missile Crisis was over. Well, publicly anyway. And the man they originally used to create the story they wanted everyone to hear was Charlie Bartlett. Now, Charlie Butler was a journalist friend of the Kennedys. He'd been the man who first introduced Jack to his wife, Jackie. And he'd been the man the president had used a week through the crisis to make contact with the Soviet spy, Georgi Bolshakov, and propose the Turkey missile swap to him. Butler knew about the Turkey deal before anyone else, except the president and his brother. He even got to show Bolshakov the top-secret spy plane photos of the missile emplacements on Cuba, marked for the president's eyes only. Butler was a journalist with very privileged access. On the 8th of December 1962, barely six weeks after the Kennedys had declared the crisis over, the Saturday Evening Post carried a six-page, fully illustrated article under the title In Time of Crisis. It was written by the paper's Washington editor, Stuart Alsop, and by Charlie Bartlett. They had in fact been working on it since the 29th of October. That is day 15 the very day after Khrushchev had accepted the Turkey missile swap. We now know, though the article doesn't mention it, that Kennedy had given the two journalists, or we may suspect primarily Charlie Bartlett, exclusive access to the White House. He had permission to talk to anyone. Bartlett, with or without Alsop, had interviewed most of the members of XCOM. Extraordinarily, he then handed the president the draft of the article. Kennedy made various changes to it and returned it. As Bartlett then told a woman journalist, Sally Beadle-Smith, he burned Kennedy's annotated draft so that nobody would know he'd seen it. Beadle-Smith writes about it in her book, Grace and Power, The Private World of the Kennedy White House, published in 2006, when Bartlett was still alive. It means that what reached the newsstands on 8th of December 1962 was the authorised Kennedy version of what had happened, a piece of propaganda. We have an original copy of the Saturday Evening Post for that day with us here in the History Cafe. Interestingly, it usually sold for 20 cents, but this week there was a special get-acquainted price of just 15 cents. On the bright yellow cover are charcoal sketches of an irascible-looking Khrushchev and a pensive-looking Kennedy. And readers are promised an exclusive account of the historic showdown between them. Open the pages 
and we discover all the famous tropes we've believed ever since about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Already here. Already here in the article Jack Kennedy commissioned and helped write in the days immediately after the crisis. The whole thing begins with Rusk's muttered remark when the Soviet ships turned round. We're eyeball to eyeball and I think the other fellow just blinked. Of course we now know that the ships were hundreds of miles away and were turned round before the blockade was in force. One of the others around the table that day, quoted but unnamed in the article, told the reporters there wasn't one of us in that room who wasn't pretty sure that in a few hours we'd have to sink one of those Russian ships. This was, you recall, shortly before, in reality, Defence Secretary Robert McNamara stormed at Admiral Gorgeous George Anderson that there'd never been any question of opening fire on the Soviets, let alone sinking any of them. The quarantine was only ever meant to be a means of communication between Khrushchev and Kennedy. Meanwhile, at sea, US sailors were stopping a Soviet ship full of military equipment and handing out sweets to the crew and bread and cigarettes to the men of a disgruntled Soviet sub. The article goes on, quoting Bobby Kennedy. We all agreed in the end that if the Russians were ready to go to nuclear war over Cuba, they were ready to go to nuclear war. And that was that. So we might as well have the showdown then as six months later. Of course, in reality... Every member of XCOM knew that the Soviets had hardly any missiles and had seen Raymond Gartov's calculations. He was the expert in the State Department. That Khrushchev would have to be insane to launch a nuclear attack in those circumstances. The President's advisers had agreed almost from day one, remember there was a memo to prove it, that the new missiles on Cuba made, quote, no significant difference. Nonetheless, the article concludes darkly, if the missile sites on Cuba became operational... Quote, we would be looking down the gun barrel of a fully operational Soviet missile complex 90 miles from our shores. And that, we're left to assume, was good enough reason for Kennedy to threaten World War III. No sooner had Nikita Khrushchev agreed to withdraw his missiles from Cuba than the Kennedys set about fabricating the myth that they had won the crisis hands down. They commissioned their old journalist friend Charlie Bartlett to write a long illustrated article for the Saturday Evening Post. Jack Kennedy secretly edited the piece before it went out. and It made the whole Soviet threat sound as grimly serious as possible and the Kennedy's response as blithely brilliant. It was a dose of spin and nonsense. And of course it made the Soviet Premier look as bumbling and confused as possible. Khrushchev, we read in the article, sent a long letter which was so confusingly vague the journalists called it Delphic. According to Bartlett and Olsop, or should we say Kennedy, Khrushchev prosed on for pages, saying, quote, if you will stop tugging on your end, I will stop tugging on mine. So, according to Olsop and Bartlett, or maybe Kennedy, in the Saturday Evening Post, it was decided that since Khrushchev had offered nothing but pages and pages of empty words, it followed that there would have to be airstrikes to take out the missile sites. Actually, we know, in fact, that Kennedy and Khrushchev had exchanged dozens of lengthy letters like this before, during, and they went on after the crisis. It was, in fact, Khrushchev who was actively trying to defuse the crisis. Then, of course, the article goes on. Bobby Kennedy has his moment of genius. Since dubbed, says the article, the Trollope ploy. Just like the 19th century novelist Trollope's young ladies deliberately misinterpreting a kind word as an offer of marriage. They would interpret Khrushchev's rambling words about a tug of war as if they were an offer to remove the missiles if the Americans didn't invade. Of course, we've seen that, in fact, Khrushchev made his offer quite clear in his first letter, 
And then his second letter, he was just responding to the Kennedy's back-channel offers of a swap with the Turkish missiles. Later on, of course, the Trollope ploy was used to refer to Bobby Kennedy's supposedly brilliant suggestion to ignore Khrushchev's demand for the Turkey missile swap and go instead for the earlier non-invasion offer. But as we shall see, Allsop and Bartlett, yes, and Kennedy, are very careful in the Saturday Evening Post to damp down any speculation that there had ever been a missile swap. Their account of Khrushchev's letter is completely dishonest. The Soviet Premier had in reality been quite clear. Quotes, if assurances were given by the President and the Government of the United States that the USA itself would not participate in an attack on Cuba and would restrain others from actions of this sort, if you would recall your fleet, this would immediately change everything. Well, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Didn't take Trollope or the Delphic Oracle to work out that Khrushchev was offering to remove his missiles if America undertook not to invade. But according to the Saturday Evening Post article, it was only the brilliance of Bobby's Trollope idea that broke the deadlock. Even Khrushchev was at once won over. The director of the CIA apparently recalled that when he heard that Khrushchev had accepted, quotes, I could hardly believe my ears. Of course, we now know, and we've seen in our previous podcast, that the Kennedys had in fact secretly been offering much more than a non-invasion promise, and that that's why Khrushchev agreed. Then the article describes the long struggle between hawks and doves in XCOM. The hawks in favour of airstrikes, and the doves in favour of blockade. Bobby, of course, say the reporters, was the leading dove. But we now know from the tapes of the meetings, however, that Bobby Kennedy was in favour of invasion, and, as he said, taking Cuba back. But in the end, says the article, all of XCOM agreed that a blockade was a way to keep all options open. By all of XCOM, incidentally, the article doesn't mean the men who actually sat through the crisis and debated options with Kennedy. XCOM officially had 12 members besides the president, along with various advisers. But the article implies there were only eight. In particular, it makes no mention of Vice President Johnson, whom the Kennedys disliked and who spent much of the crisis out campaigning for the midterm elections. Clearly, Kennedy had thought that that was a more important role for his vice president than avoiding World War III. Llewellyn Thompson is also missing. Till earlier that year, he'd been the US ambassador in Moscow and understood Khrushchev much better than anyone else in the room. According to Dean Rusk and Robert McNamara, Llewellyn Thompson was the man who actually suggested taking up the non-invasion deal and ignoring Khrushchev's turkey swap demands. But of course, the article gives all the credit for coming up with a non-invasion idea to Bobby Kennedy. On the other hand, Ted Sorensen, who was Kennedy's friend and speechwriter, is credited as being one of XCOM's members, in what he wasn't, though he was usually also in the room. He also, we may assume, worked closely with Bartlett and Allsop to write the Saturday Evening Post article. There's even a picture of him grinning broadly and getting out of an official limousine. Anyway, having got the blockade agreed, the article takes a bizarre turn. The only person, it claims, who disagreed with the blockade idea was Adlai Stevenson, the American ambassador at the UN. In reality, of course, as we've seen, he was the man who proposed to Kennedy right from the start the deal over Turkish missiles. It was the same deal that Kennedy then negotiated secretly without telling XCOM until the very end and then only let a handful in on the secret. In Allsop and Bartlett and Kennedy's version, Stevenson proposes the Turkish swap after everyone else has already agreed the blockade. It was, say these reporters, quoting an anonymous source named only as a non-admiring official, like the British trying to appease Hitler at Munich by letting him invade Czechoslovakia. 
The turkey deer was a cowardly, weak idea. So, report Alsop and Bartlett and Kennedy, opposite a full-page picture of Stevenson, the President politely heard him out and ignored him. Now, we will know from the podcasts we've done on this series that that was an outrageous slur on the man who proposed to Kennedy the very deal that ended the crisis. Well, in the end, we read in the Saturday Evening Post, Khrushchev is put in his place. Kennedy is able to make amends for the awful Bay of Pigs disaster, the attempted invasion of Cuba in 1961, which the Kennedys always, of course, like to blame on Eisenhower. In the article, the reporters quote an unnamed man close to Kennedy as saying, quote, the Bay of Pigs thing was badly planned and never really thought out. They go on to say that the Cuban Missile Crisis was different. Quotes, we knew the facts, we knew each other, and we thought it through right to the end. Above all, they maintain that the president never lost his nerve or sense of humour. All the elements of the later myth, Khrushchev's blink, an early version of the Trollope ploy, Bobby the leading dove, Kennedy the patient, intelligent seeker after peace, all those elements were deliberately created by the Kennedys within days of the end of the crisis, hiding behind their old journalist friend Charlie Bartlett and the Washington editor of the Saturday Evening Post. Adlai Stevenson, who'd been so slurred in the article, was understandably furious. He went on TV and stormed that the article was, quote, wrong in literally every detail. He was, of course, correct. But the Kennedys had fallen out horribly with Stevenson at the Democratic Convention of 1960 when both had bid for the presidency, and Kennedy had won. Stevenson, incidentally, was secretly offered financial and public relations help by the Soviets to get himself elected instead of Kennedy in 1960, but turned them down. Interesting. But now the Kennedys were using Bartlett and Alsop to knife their well-respected rival and at the same time to scotch rumours that there had been some kind of missile trade-off. Stevenson, their ambassador to the UN, was thrown to the dogs in order to protect the Kennedys' reputation. However, Time magazine saw straight through the piece and accused Kennedy of being behind it. The president was forced to go before the Federal Communications Commission, where he lied that he had nothing to do with the article. The other members of XCOM never said a word about it. Some, like Lyndon Johnson, never knew that a deal had secretly been done to remove the Turkish missiles in exchange for the Cuban ones. Even when he was president, nobody told Johnson. So Althorp and Bartlett's article, published on the 8th of December 1962, created many of the elements of the Cuban Missile Crisis myth. But it didn't make the myth itself. That began a year later. On 22nd November 1963, a year to the day after the Soviets decided, for their own reasons, to withdraw the missiles from Cuba, John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. It's possible that the gunman Lee Harvey Oswald sympathised with the Cubans. But whatever Oliver Stone's film may say, the Cubans had wanted nothing to do with Oswald, and there's no believable evidence at all of a conspiracy. In November 1963, Kennedy's ratings had been at their lowest yet. But naturally, after his tragic and very public shooting, he was suddenly everyone's hero, and the Cuban Missile Crisis was quickly being touted as his greatest moment. Now, the myth-making became an industry. In 1965, Kennedy's friend and speechwriter Arthur Schlesinger Jr. wrote a book about the Kennedy presidency. 
He had oozed Schlesinger, demonstrated, quotes, the ripening of an American leadership unsurpassed in the responsible management of power. Over Cuba, Schlesinger continued, Kennedy, quote, dazzled the world with his combination of toughness and restraint, of will, nerve and wisdom, so brilliantly controlled, so matchlessly calibrated. Bobby Kennedy's trollop ploy, he said, was, quote, a thought of breathtaking ingenuity and simplicity. Many of the often quoted details were added to Schlesinger's fawning account a year later when Pierre Salinger, Kennedy's press secretary, brought out his own book on the presidency. Salinger was a close friend of the Soviet spy Georgi Bolshakov, and the two of them had passed dozens of off-the-record letters between Kennedy and Khrushchev. Salinger had even spent two days in May 1962 with Nikita Khrushchev in a government dacha outside Moscow. Much later, he told the Washingtonian magazine that during the Cuban crisis, he had known, quotes, everything that was happening. His 1966 account tells the authorised Kennedy's version, and of course says nothing about their back-channel diplomacy. Nor even, though he was Kennedy's press secretary, anything about Charlie Bartlett or the Saturday Evening Post. In his memoirs published in 1995, Salinger says plenty about Kennedy, but not a word about the crisis. Maybe he knew too much. Back in 1968, Bobby Kennedy was working on his own account of the crisis, using transcripts of the secret XCOM tapes. Bobby was now running for the presidency himself, and of course he made himself the hero of the crisis. A friend read the draft and wondered aloud whether John Kennedy had also had some part in facing down the Soviets. He did, replied Bobby, but he isn't running for president this year. But before the book was finished, Bobby too had been assassinated. It was the Kennedy's close friend Ted Sorensen who finished it, and it was published as 13 Days. Its version of the story, building on what Bartlett and then Schlesinger had written, is what most people continue to believe. Jack Kennedy has been voted America's most popular president, and the Cuban Missile Crisis his proudest moment. The Cuban Missile Crisis is taught in classrooms in the USA, Britain and no doubt elsewhere as an American victory. American universities and business schools use it as, quote, a shining example of crisis management. Soviets, by contrast, drew the conclusion that crises cannot be managed. They are dangerous and spin all too easily out of control. Crisis, the Soviets decided, must be avoided. At the time, according to Bobby Kennedy, his brother instructed the members of XCOM not to claim any kind of victory. Perhaps it was because the brothers knew what a disaster it had been, how it had left their Cuban strategy in tatters and threatened the trust at the heart of American alliances. In pursuit of votes for midterm elections, they'd failed to negotiate either openly, coherently or promptly and allowed the situation to slide dangerously close to nuclear war. Even in the article Kennedy wrote with Charlie Bartlett, there's very little sense of victory. The hope is, it concludes rather soberly, quotes, that somehow the world will rock along without the kind of war that might destroy us all. But this wasn't the message everyone else in the Kennedy administration took away. After all, they had no idea that there'd been a secret deal to swap the missiles in Turkey with those in Cuba. On the 29th of October, day 15, Raymond Gartoff, intelligence analyst in the State Department, memoed the Under Secretary of State. And he said... If we've learned anything from this experience, it is that weakness, even only apparent weakness, invites Soviet transgression. 
At the same time, firmness in the last analysis will force the Soviets to back away from rash initiatives, end quote. And this kind of thinking ran deep into American foreign policy circles. As James Nathan has put it, as a result of the crisis, force and toughness became enshrined as instruments of policy. For a generation or more, American foreign policy shockingly pursued an idea of coercive diplomacy. But it was based on the fabrications that the Kennedys created around the Cuban Missile Crisis. The crisis is, in fact, the textbook example of how to create an historical myth. In the end, the Kennedys' achievement in the Cuban Missile Crisis was to make defeat look like success. It was, in Schlesinger's words, matchlessly calibrated. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Thank you.